0: Yo, falsetto, what's your favorite line and scene from this slick flick Pick? When it comes to these wild and whimsical westerns of yore, there is no shortage of lengthy dialogue, exposition, and the character's thoughts translated into vocal form to pick from. Particularly when this film, this slick flick motherfucking troglodyte fucking flick, is over two hours in duration. But there is a smorgasbord of grandiloquent, fantastic dialogue to select from. We start with Sheriff Franklin Hunt, played by the iconic, unmistakable Kurt Russell. Say goodbye to my wife. I'll say hello to yours. Samantha has a great line here. This is why frontier life is so difficult. Not because of the Indians or the elements. But because of the idiots, John Bruder, ah, Mr. Bruder, played by the great Matthew Fox. This is his best role ever. Yes, far superior to his role as Jack in the television show Lost. But Mr. Bruder, I'm far too vain to ever live as a cripple. Such self-awareness. This is a character who knows exactly who he is and how he wants to go out of this life. Another great scene with John Bruder. I should go with you, since I'm most experienced with killing Indians. That's not a boast. That's a fact. And this is a contender line of dialogue where he is trying to commission the piano player and asking him why he charges what he charges when it makes little sense to him. If one song costs three cents, why do three songs cost a dime? That's the rate. Shouldn't the price per song get cheaper when more are commissioned? Well, I get tired after two, so the third costs extra. Do four songs cost a dollar? Buy a song or depart. That was a dime. I know the sound of Lady Liberty. Favorite scenes from Bone Tomahawk? The first five minutes. In the first five minutes, you get to see David Arquette. As a slimy little slaughterer, that son of a bitch, and Captain Spaulding from all those Rob Zombie movies, you get to see these two thieving, murdering bastards killing those who decided to sojourn and take a little nap. You get to see them being pursued by what looks to be phantoms in the desert sand. You see them come upon a Native American burial land, and you see one of them get brutally dispatched. And of course, Mr. David Arquette runs for his fucking life. But you get to see a lot in the first five minutes. Character development. You get to see the harsh conditions of living in the open plains, where you take your chances with every passing decision. And you get to see some real sinister evil on the outskirts of town. I love the scene where Kurt Russell approaches David Arquette in the bar and begins a nocturnal interrogation that quickly becomes suspenseful and could prove lethal. This is completely reminiscent of Kurt Russell as Wyatt Earp in the 1993 film Tombstone. Putting on western garb and being the sheriff of a small town or hamlet that has lawless characters, this is such a familiar role for Kurt Russell, and he is so goddamn good at playing this character. He was fantastic in The Hateful Eight, he was amazing in Tombstone. Being a Wild West cowboy is one of the many chameleon skins that he wears with aplomb. He's likable, he's courageous, and he's never too boastful. The scene where Bruder is being quick on the draw, shooting some interlopers that come upon them under nightfall in camp, Bruder is not fucking around. And as his revolvers would suggest, it's taking a page out of the Doc Holiday book to also reference the 1993 film Tombstone. And for any of you that say Val Kilmer cannot act, for whatever reason i highly recommend you watch his vivid and vicious portrayal as doc holiday in that film lastly i love it when patrick wilson bests the two troglodytes and finds the whistle that has been embedded in their throats this is a turning point in the film it gives you the viewer a little victory and it makes things very interesting as we are learning without words about this troglodyte clan and their macabre methods. I love Bone Tomahawk, for it is a perfect union of horror and western. And while some critics debate if it's even a horror film at all, or if it's just a very wild and bloodletting type western, that I will leave to debate. But I will say that there were times in this film where I felt horrified, and I was completely transfixed and bewitched by The cinematography, the acting, the nail biting, stomach churning suspense at what will happen, and will our gruesome foursome make it out alive? Will they make it out with all of their limbs? These were questions that I found myself contemplating as we delved further into the West. Greetings, cinematic fanatics. Allow me, westernized, cannibalized, stabbing both westward and any upright bipedal who stands in their way, bisecting and dissecting pleasure of ushering you through the cracked, dusty, and dried ground, blood-soaked, cave-fire-stoked, and subsequent crime scene after their precious gravesite is disturbed and provoked. This is a slow-burning slick flick that a little past midway becomes a stomach-churning, panic-inducing potboiler. The violence is blunt and extreme, and you will surely want to scream. But if you tell yourself it is not a real nightmare, rather a cinematic dream with a shock and awe theme, you will remind yourself that things are simply not as brutal and unforgiving as they seem. But I, falsetto prophet, your worthwhile cinephile, am on your team. And it is my pleasure esteem to this flick redeem by gifting you this shocking, sensational, stupendous, scary, superior, western-horror hybrid treat of Slick Flick Pick, an entertaining Slick Flick Explaining series, a desirable diversion from the main tomahawked and scalped forehead vein of Kimohawk Sessions. You're my cinematic fanatics. I, your worthwhile fucking cinephile. For your 43rd episode, my bicolor compadre, Othello, that is, my tuxedo cat, who is approximately 12 years old, and I, review one of our most feared, appreciated, and applauded western genre entries of yore, with a terrifyingly torturous twist in the Kurt Russell compendium of solid work, a bleak, haunting, menacing "'Gorgeously shot and choreographed, excruciatingly well-acted, and written, "'with proficient pacing, and a cathartically pleasing conclusion, "'to the terrors that befall a town, and the quartet who rides, then walks, "'then sacrifices much, to save those who were, mostly, all, abducted, imprisoned, "'bisected, and eaten. "'This is a flick that does not pull its trog fucking ladite punches.' The question still lingers, which of our human cast will end up these savages' goddamn lunches? There are scenes so jaw-dropping, visually striking and intense, such as when these trogs attack, but with a whistle for a warning. They kill with swiftness and capture with ease. They hobble even a curt and capable sheriff to his knees. They don't give a shiz if you beg, barter, or say please. They are too dense to understand your pleas. When they bisect a man, you know Russell is without a plan. When they launch their arrows and offer a dead sparrow for sustenance to the fine damsel in cage distress. There is much in this primitive cave to stress, for these gaggle of goliaths could not, for your feelings, care fucking less. This is a gorgeously grim human value contemplating Shakespearean soliloquy written 80% western 20% sheer terror which proves a rather equitable and sensical blend as the suspense builds to an intolerable quotient. This flick crosses every conceivable boundary to the limits and extremes of our sensibilities but it does so with confidence dark humor and style as it takes us from the present and drops us within the world of the distant Wild West and into a trio of genres. Western, horror, suspense. It transitions so seamlessly between genres and off simultaneously in such a way that you process it as a simple study in filmmaking sleekness. I offer you, regarding this explosive, haunting, vicious, vibrant, and brilliantly well-articulated, westernized, cannibalized, bisected quartet of four brave guys who all will be shown a gruesome surprise and or demise production bone tomahawk circa october 2015 such a grand halloween feature if i do say so myself this flick is structured for a large portion of its vast running time as a traditional western with the law and a ragtag bunch on a trek to save the lady as they follow their heroic hunch, and pack such palpable chemistry with every verbal punch. But they, and we, soon know they won't be back in time for Sunday lunch. The dame is a doctor, and a fetching sight worth saving. Buddy, aka Purvis, paid the price for misbehaving, for its long pig, human meat, these cannibals are craving. With their fashion bone tomahawk, they're enslaving, and too close for fucking comfort, shaving. They are rather hard to locate, on account of their years spent caving. But their reputations, scalps, midsections, and lives, these swashbucklers, a modest, honest sheriff, a trigger-happy Lothario, a busted-legged complainer, and a garrulous deputy are braving. Recline, cinematic fanatics, in your favorite well-worn, stale chair. Rustle up some popcorn, fresh as fuck, the antithesis to that stale-ass chair I just mentioned. Zoom in and zone out, as we unwind the daily grind, with a Slick Flick Pick. Bone Tomahawk is the flick, so very slick, hence my pick. When Slick Flick Pick is near, avoid any cave, and the depraved, and stick around, till, Falsetto Prophet's, ominously whistling voice, you hear. Lights, camera action, lens distraction, and, with the right Slick Flick Pick, grant satisfaction. I'm your worthwhile cinephile, you're my cinematic fanatics. Together, we excitement unlock and run down the real world's unimaginative clock while feasting our eyes on this blood-slick, flint-sharpened flick primitive pick. Enter with me, you cinematic fanatics, into the realm of film's fantasy while we unwind the grind of reality. I offer you Pick 43, Slick Flick Pick, Westernized to Cannibalized. An infection, bisection, unnatural selection, and a westward direction. Where there's a Wilson, there's a way. Bone Tomahawk twenty fifteen. Today we'll discuss the dangers of trusting any mofo who approaches your camp in a furtive manner in the dark, the brilliance, economy, and utility behind using a string of bells configuration as an unsophisticated oral trip flare. The savageness, yet undeniable likability, of Matthew fucking Fox, and hoping to Christ he outfoxes the troglodytes. The constant and repeated desire to see Albert Sweringen from Deadwood make an appearance, wielding his long blade knife and wicked wordplay that cuts even deeper. The gruesomeness of the violence in the cave, contrasted with the gentle way in which Samantha rides her Broke Lake hubby and the foreseeable and unforeseeable dangers associated with drinking from a goddamn flask. Your worthwhile cinephile, eyes like a hawk, wit sharp as a trog, killing tomahawk, balsetto prophet. It is time to speak plain and curt. Get it? Idiom, wordplay, Kurt Russell, Kurt also being curt, as in brief with your words, I love it. This is now my 43rd Slick Flick Pick review, and I must tell you, for those who have been enjoying some, for those loyal listeners who have been enjoying all, there are days, weeks, months even, where this is conceivably the last thing I want to do. It takes time to watch a film, take notes on said film, transition the notes, transpose your information, collect your thoughts, and write up such a marvelous beginning intro speech. This is time-consuming. But it is also satisfying, and if you enjoy films, even a scintilla, as much as I, I know that you enjoy the film, the dissection of the film, and you can just feel the palpable passion, energy, and desire oozing from my voice to your ears. I fucking love cinema, and I really particularly fancy Slick Flick pics. I'm reminded of the fact that every time I want to shit on the last 15 years, As far as the quality of films being in decline, I still think that that is true wholeheartedly. But when I encounter a film as recent as Bone Tomahawk, eight years ago, I thought that the idea of a horrified Western or a Westernized horror film would be long since past or outside the realm of even contemporary capabilities or possibility. I was wrong. Bone Tomahawk is a tip-top fucking flick. I don't want to watch it when I'm eating lasagna. I don't want to watch it more than maybe twice a year, but this is a very satisfying film, and I highly recommend it. Bone Tomahawk is a 2015 American Western film directed by S. Craig Zoller. This is his directorial debut that, in and of itself, is extremely impressive. It stars Kurt Russell, Patrick Wilson, Matthew Fox, Richard Jenkins, Lily Simmons, David Arquette, Sid Haig, Tip Top Cast, and every character is well-utilized, maybe even underutilized. Their speeches, their natures, the way they carry themselves, this is all supremely satisfying. It was produced by Jack Heller and Dallas Sonier. This film is about a small-town sheriff, Kurt Russell, who else, who leads a posse into a desolate region to rescue three people who were abducted by a cannibalistic Native American clan. But really, for purposes of this flick, they're referred to solely as troglodytes. As in, you've got different layers of savagery, and the troglodytes are at the tippity-top. Development of the film started when the director's friend and manager recommended to create a film adaption of Zoller's western novel, Wraiths of a Broken Land. Realizing that such a project could not be adapted on a low budget, Zoller opted to write a rescue western instead. Filming took place in California over 21 days. That is extremely swift filmmaking. The premiere of Bone Tomahawk took place at Fantastic Fest. It received mainly positive reviews with praise for the screenplay, direction, and the performances. But these were the various criticisms that I heard about this flick. Violence is too extreme. You just can't get it out of your brain. It affects you at a cerebral and visceral level. Well, it is extremely violent, but it's also about a violent time and violent characters that were trying to survive in that time. Most people took issue, now the range of those issues varied, but most people found the film to be too long, as it is 2 hours, 2 hours and 12 minutes. I personally like a long film, if it's a Slick Flick pick particularly, I simply want to see more of it. So the link did not bother me in the slightest. This is, first and foremost, a slow burn film. And one of the advantages to creating a slow burn feature is that it may take longer longer to get to the action, or to the denouement, or the end. But when you do, it is all the more satisfying, enriching, and memorable. This is a sterling example of that. Here are some contender titles that I crafted. A Quartet Bisected Going Ballistic on the Cannibalistic Fucking Ugly Feller, a Cave Dweller The Natives are Restless, Godless, and Shameless Land of No Man I will tell you that Land of No Man is also a title of an original poem that I have crafted. How about that? Perhaps I will get to that when I eventually get to another segment of my Kimo Sessions podcast, which will be called Faux Poet, where I talk about writing and how to write skillfully. Life of the raiding party, best not to go where horns blow. Lastly, outboxing wolf skull. This was made on a budget of 1.8 million dollars. And the money received was much lower than that. What are you going to do? Now this cast, so Kurt Russell is the main lead. He plays Sheriff Franklin Hunt. He is straight out of Wyatt Earp from Tombstone in this role. It fits him like the sheath on a tomahawk, and it works. We are rooting for this guy. Patrick Wilson is always reliable. You recognize him from the Insidious and Conjuring series. He just plays a good guy who's trying to get his wife. He's got a fucked up leg because of a roof fall incident, and he is constantly bickering and complaining. Matthew Fox, as this trigger-happy Lothario plays John Bruder, he is the person to watch. He's in the first half of the film, not the second half of the film. He is so missed when he does die, and his dialogue and the way he delivers it, the way he carries himself, his posture, his stalwart approach to life and to killing, I just absolutely love his character. Richard Jenkins is always memorable, or he's always reliable, and he, of course, sells himself very well here in this role as Deputy chicory. Lily Simmons, now she's a pretty gal. I recognize her from the television show Banshee, True Detective. She is great here. She's a strong woman with important things to say. She has medical advice and good suggestions to contribute, and she acts sensibly. In fact, she acts so sensibly that she's often talking some of the guys down for making foolhardy decisions. You get a smaller part from David Arquette, you get Sid Haig as Buddy, and all of the little side characters or main character adjacent characters are, of course, very talented in their respective roles. Now, despite Sonyer's assurances that there would be no intervention in the original script, investors still wanted the script to be changed due to conflicting interpretations of the film's genre. Zoller refused to compromise on full creative control and reducing the film length to 90 minutes. If this film was reduced to 90 minutes, I don't know exactly where they would have made their cuts and their revisions, but I can tell you that if they cut down time on the front end, that would make the trail end of the film less engrossing. If they cut out some of the violence later in the film, then you would feel like you were taken on a goddamn red herring. So I approve of the film's original length of over two hours. The director thought that Kurt Russell was a good fit for the role of Franklin Hunt, the sheriff, who read the script and quickly agreed to perform. Russell had gotten along well with the director and had also read one of the director's novels, Wraiths of the Broken Land. Kurt Russell appreciated the script and the sparse writing style. This is a film where the words are not wasted. Everybody has something to say. They qualify as meaningful contributions. No words are wasted. Nothing is said to excess. You can feel how these characters are leaning what they're thinking, pondering, and what directions they ultimately make. It's all embedded in their dialogue. So if you pay attention closely to what is being said, you can learn a shit ton. Also, it's interesting to note that Kurt Russell was also involved in the film The Hateful Eight at around the same time of filming for this one. He had to look different between the two films. So he had to make adjustments to his beard, and it's described as, in Bone Tomahawk, his beard was sort of a halfway house thing. But in Hateful Eight, it was full-blown maturity. I think that's interesting. Jenkins was the director's primary choice for the role of Deputy Chickory, who ended up becoming the director's favorite character to write. Although Chickory was written with Jenkins in mind, Jenkins decided to give Chickory an accent and a raspy voice. Though he ended up acting in a normal voice, he still pushed the accent on screen. This, of course, was filmed over 21 days at the Paramount Ranch in California. The director claims that he avoids using too many close-ups in the film, remarking that most of the time you interact with people, you're not just looking at their faces unless you're intimate. He believes that modern filmmaking's use of close-ups misses a lot of body language, especially the hands. Now, interesting side note, I am also in the process of preparing to perform a Slick Flick Pick review of the film Ex Mahina with my beloved brother Brooks. Well, this guy... As he always brings his A-game on the intellectual discourse, I was looking into some research on Ex Mahina, and if you notice, the AI robot is given a human face, hands, and feet. And the reason given in the research said that one of the most humanistic characteristics that you can give a, in this case, an AI robot, eyes that are human and hands, evidently human hands are seen as being almost the gateway to knowing that you're dealing with, in fact, a Homo sapien life form. Bone Tomahawk is well known for violent scenes in the Troglodyte's cave. I will have you know that this cave was the same area where the TV show Weeds and the movie Iron Man shot some of their scenes. The director explained that violence enhances the characters by showing all that violence and showing him talking the guy through it. For me, it was always a real scene of strength for Sheriff Hunt to not just cower away or start blubbering. He's talking a person through the worst moment of his life. I will tell you that that is true. This is the worst scene in the film by a large, macabre margin, and it is not something that you will quickly forget or misplace in your mind. As hideous as the violence is in that scene, it's a real showing of character strength. He endures that and does something during those actions that most people couldn't do. Also, the director did not fully focus the camera on the troglodytes, wanting to make their culture more mysterious. To me, that plays into the slow burn process, the anticipation having to rely on your own imagination, curiosities, and what you can and cannot ponder. Praise was given to the story and the script. Most people, particularly Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian, enjoy the combination of horror and Western genres. Also that some comedy was interwoven with the horror and Western elements. Similar praise was given to the film's performances, production design, cinematography, score, and screenplay. As I mentioned, there was some criticism directed at the film's runtime and that it was simply too long. It was the winner of some awards. Best Technical Artistic Western from the Almeria Western Film Festival. Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. Kurt Russell won Best Actor. Good for you, buddy. At the Sitgis Film Festival, it won Best Direction Award and the Jose Luis Gardner Prize. It is time for Trivialized Cannibalized Trivia. Shot in 21 days, I remember talking on a previous Slick Flick pick with Caro Blood Red Wine, and we were talking about the film Urban Legend, and how that film was wrapped up in about 50-something days, I believe. And we both agree that that was an insanely fast pace to shoot and finish a film. Here it was 21 days, so very, very awe-inspiring. Matthew Fox has said that he enjoyed making this movie more than any other film. The burial ground of the troglodytes is an obvious homage to the Indian burial ground from Pet Cemetery. I did not know what the word troglodyte was until about 15 years ago. And its simple translation is cave dweller. But it can also apply to someone that like ignores or sidesteps social occasions. I've already mentioned tombstone a couple of times. Let's make it third time and gun this arm because John Bruder wears the same style pistol holder as Johnny Ringo, who was played by the great Michael Bean in tombstone. Wolf Skull, one of the lead troglodytes, played by actor Ra Leba, does not die in this film. He just wanders off, paving the way for a possible sequel. This was made in 2015, it's now 2023. I don't think a sequel is on its way. I don't know if my sensibilities for extreme violence could handle a sequel, because generally the sequels tend to be bloodier with a higher body count, as is true with the horror genre. Kurt Russell and David Arquette both appeared in the film 3,000 miles to Graceland. Total body count of this? Well, it says 23. And then it says 24. Three campers, two thieves, three Mexicans, 12 Indians, stable boy, deputy sheriff, and Matthew Fox. I don't know if mine, 24, is correct or not, because IMBD has it at 23. And then I did some math and I arrived at 24. I don't know. But what I do know is that that's a lot of dead bodies in the course of a little over two hours. I can tell you that this film really resonated with me because I appreciate a good Western and I like an exquisitely well made horror film. So let's take the horror out. Let's just say that this is a brutal story about pioneers trying to survive a evil antagonist. Well, evil doesn't do them justice. And if you're really paying attention the last five or six minutes of this film, after you've already Played audience with your peepers, and you've already witnessed such obscene violence and such rampant and wanton disregard for human life. You are gifted this gratuitous treat towards the very end as they are working their way out of this cave. And that is an image that takes me back to the episode home on the X-Files show that I will also not be able to scratch out of my brain. But in the context of the film and the characterization, it is a apt and fitting approach to giving you more information to these fucked up, cave dwelling, war paint wearing monsters. Now we fashion a makeshift toma bone, bone hawk, or a hawk bone. Whatever we have, the fingers left to craft. Bone tomahawk, caliber media, also the fizz facility, and celluloid dreams. David Arquette is present. It's a sunny day in the plains and that guy from Devil's Rejects, Mr. Spaulding. They are two bandits who are murdering and stealing from just a group of locals who have decided to set up camp. They are robbers, raiders, brigands, highway robbers, plunderers, whatever you want to call them. This film looks gorgeous. You can feel the heat beating down on you in that Californian sun. Your mouth gets parched at the constant imagery of all the sand and tumbleweeds, you feel like you are present, that you were taken back, and that you were taken west to experience all of this for perhaps the first time. Gorgeous looking film, particularly when you realize this was shot in such a short span of time, less than a month, and the budget was barely $2 million. It also pays tribute to the idea you can do a lot with a little if you're talented and if you have a dedicated casting crew. It is a true western. The cinematography, the clarity of viewing, you can clearly see, sometimes to your level of violence's capabilities, you are shown things very clearly. Nothing happens that is ambiguous or too dark or too murky to see. You clearly get a glimpse of what is happening, who it is happening to, and what the implications and the consequences are of various actions. Both the night and the day shots are very clear, and I appreciate this we learn that there are 16 major veins in the human neck. I can't really get a consensus. I tried to look it up. I think there might be fewer, but the advice that David Arquette gets from his partner in crime is that there are 16 major veins in the neck, and you must sever them all. Okay, as these two idiots are walking down this previously walked path, a horn blows. Now, this horn is fucking terrifying, and it also serves a good narrative tool. So it's a dual-function horn. And it's also good for the budget. I liken it to the film Jaws. In Jaws, as they are on the surface of the ocean, they never really knew where the shark was. By shooting these yellow barrels that are being suspended by this rope into the shark, you know because of where the barrels are floating, you get an approximation of where the shark is, and you at least know that he's there. So it adds suspense, and it's also a very cheap trick. While listening to this horn, you know that danger is goddamn close. And it's up to you and the characters to figure out how you're going to process that. But when I first heard this horn, I didn't know what it was. I thought it was the wind. But the way that they talk about it, it's hilarious. The guy says, no, that's not a horn. That's a musical gust. Well, it's an ominous one. And the guy says, this is not the time for womanly imaginings. This dialogue is perfect. It's up there with Deadwood, David Milch level dialogue. They find some skulls that are basically saying to those of you interlopers who would proceed Keep the fuck out. I would avoid this boneyard myself. I have seen Jeremiah Johnson with Robert Redford, and I know better. Apparently, these guys do not take the hint. The guy gets an arrow through his Adam's apple, and then he is hacked to pieces by a bone tomahawk for David Arquette to leave panicked and sprinting in the opposite direction. We get a little placard on the screen. 11 days later. So 11 days have transpired. We are brought to a city called Bright Hope, population 268. This reminds me of a horror video game called Little Hope, where a school bus of children crashes in Little Hope, and they are being pursued and terrorized by demons. Patrick Wilson. Always good to see him. When I see Patrick Wilson, I see the face of America, much like Paul Walker. He's got a clean-cut face. He's got blue eyes. He looks like someone that could own a Chick-fil-A franchise. He looks like somebody you can trust. Well, he fell off the roof, that poor bastard, but his hot wife from Banshee and True Detective and Ray Donovan, she is very accommodating and she is very kind and sweet, but she also speaks the truth, and he says, I'm not sulking, I'm sour. See, this guy wants to work, he wants to be able to move around, he wants to have full faculty, but because his leg is all busted up because of his fall, his leg is basically in a splint, and he is told to be on bed rest and to keep it elevated. David Arquette, he appears in this town on the outskirts of Bright Hope, and he is burying his last lute outside of town. Okay, Matthew Fox. He is supremely well-dressed, and this is his greatest role ever. The bartender mentions something called a piano forte. I didn't know what that was, but what I could find on Wikipedia, just like the introduction notes were from Wikipedia, a fort piano, not piano forte, but a fort piano, sometimes referred to as a piano forte, is an early piano. In principle, the word Forte Piano can designate any piano dating from the invention of the instrument by Bartolomeo Cristofore in 1698, up to the early 19th century. Most typically, however, it is used to refer to the mid-18th to early 19th century instruments for which composers of the classical era, especially Mozart, etc., and the younger Beethoven, wrote their piano music. Well, he wants whiskey. I'll have whiskey. Meanwhile, Kurt Russell is having a nightly discussion with his deputy, and he makes soup, which really looks like corn chowder. The little details are what make this film amazing. The backup deputy is Chicory, and he, of course, is the great Richard Jenkins, who I've seen in too many films to mention. The Learn Goat is the name of the local saloon where this stranger is. Fortunately, though Richard Jenkins is an older deputy, his eyes and his wits are still about him, and he tells the sheriff, I noticed this fool outside, bearing clothes and whatnot, before he entered the town. And then I like the line where it's, you look like you could use something potent, or omnipotent, or omnipotent. Omnipotent is usually used to discuss the Lord, for example. Like the Lord knows all, and he's all powerful. So omnipotent, omniscient, it's a good word. Now we get an awesome Kurt Russell here, just like Wyatt Earp in Tombstone, when he was bitch-slapping Billy Bob Thornton. And here he's a little bit more polite, he's a little bit more toned down, but he is absolutely terrifying, powerful, and he commands the goddamn screen. If you make flirtatious remarks in my wife's presence, there'll be a reckoning. This is Patrick Wilson warning Bruder to not mess with his wife, as he is a known Lothario or Casanova. Of course, Kurt Russell ultimately had to shoot David Arquette in the leg because he wouldn't do as he was told and he wouldn't stop fucking around. But we have such a level of detail here. There's mention of playing checkers. We see people playing checkers. And then there's mention of someone or something called Hale. The word Hale is used. Well, of a person, especially an elderly one, it means strong and healthy. We also have Deputy Nick. Now, Deputy Nick is an interesting looking character. He is in this film. He plays Deputy Nick. He is also in The Night House and The Empty Man. And he's in that show called Archive 81. I don't know if I can pronounce his name properly, but I'm going to give it a go. Evan Jonakit, but he is someone that has a very unusual last name, and it took all of me to pronounce it as well as possible. Kurt Russell says, well, they could come to town and watch him turn purple on the rope. He also proffered Buddy, but that's probably someone he hates or who is dead. Kurt Russell knows that the name Buddy is likely not David Arquette's real name, because he hesitated to say it. And this also speaks to the wisdom of the characters, how they have lived a life having to be cautious and circumspect, and they're not fucking around. But it's the cleverness and dialogue that really allows you to creep ever so briefly into their minds. The stable boy is dead. He has been horrifically attacked and beheaded. And then there's mention of fry bread. Well, what the fuck is fry bread? That's F is in foxtrot, R is in Romeo, Y is in Yankee, bread. Is a dish of the indigenous people of North America that is a flat dough bread, fried or deep fried in oil, shortening, or lard. Yummy. We find some dead bodies, some horses have been taken, Some town locals have been taken, and it appears like they were Indians because there were some arrows that were left stuck to the wall of the sheriff's station. Sheriff Hunt shows these arrows to the local professor, and he says, well, these are not Indians. Because Sheriff Forrest Hunt, he says it looks Native American, but he doesn't reckon that it is. There's something different about the arrows, evidently. Also, I am surprised that these attackers did not reclaim their arrow, but they decided to leave it in the wall. This tells me they were either in a hurry, or they do not feel that there is a threat. And then, of course, he says, tell me here and tell me plain. That's Wilson to Hunt. And Hunt says, look, three were abducted, your wife the nurse, Purvis, and Deputy Nick. So the injured Purvis, who was shot in the leg, David Arquette, who proffered the name Buddy, he was taken as well. Well, really, we have David Arquette to blame for all this bullshit, because of that Native American cemetery boondoggle. If they hadn't gone traipsing across the cemetery, and if David Arquette had run to Little Hope 11 days later, guess what? The town would have been spared. Now the professor, the Native American professor who was able to give them a little bit of insider info, that's the guy from the show Longmire. He always plays a Native American, usually. He was in Midnight Texas, the show. He was in Dark Winds. He's been in some films. And he usually plays a character that makes comments about the white man. In other words, you've got like the evil white man that encroached upon our land. It reminds me of the character Gil Birmingham, who was in Hell or High Water and the show Yellowstone. It's a very similar thing. But in Longmire, as Officer Matthias, that's exactly the type of character that he plays. He was also great in the show Fargo. He's usually portraying a character that's deriding and chiding the white man for taking land and being butchers and things of this nature. We learn that this tribe does not have a language. They are cave dwellers or troglodytes. And it reminds me, there's a scene where, so the guy that was working at the stables, he was black. And they say, like, well, why was he left? Why was he not taken? And her response is, they don't eat Negroes. Well, this is actually something that reminds me of the film No Country for Old Men, which is actually a fantastic Western. But there was this cartel violence that occurred in the desert, and several bodies are left. Now, these are Mexicans that are left basically at the border, or they are left within the state lines of Texas. One character, Tommy Lee Jones, is talking to Garrett Della Hunt. And it's like, well, why have the creatures not attacked this scene? Why have they not eaten the dead bodies? And Tommy Lee Jones says, well, the rumor is a coyote won't eat a Mexican. This is interesting language because, one, we again are transported back to a different time where people would say things like this. But it also appears to be kind of in a broader sense that people were more apt to make generalizations and they were apt to make generalized statements because. They were having to size up situations quickly. And they also weren't too concerned about being politically correct because every day it was a simple matter of gathering whatever food, whatever ingredients, whatever tools you had to stay alive. So I don't think people really gave a shit about whether or not they were being insensitive or whether or not they were being construed as someone who was narrow minded or even absent minded. And it just, again, it pays to the rawness of the language that this director is utilizing. And what I appreciate about raw language is that it seems less rehearsed. It seems more natural, and even though there are things that are said that can be construed as offensive or downright shameful, it still stays true to the characters that would be traipsing around the Wild West many years ago. Now, there's this thing called Valley of the Starving Men. This is an interesting name, as in fact, we will learn that they are fucking cannibals, so they must really be starving. Also, though she's in a very brief scene, it's the chick from Ace Ventura, the one that made out with... Ace Ventura, but you find out she's got a dick or something. Very interesting indeed. Now, Kurt Russell clearly does not respect the mayor. I get the impression that he sees the mayor as an empty suit or a figurehead. This is just like the shield and the way that Vic Mackey sees Captain Aceveda. What do they bring for their long journey? As we learn that it's like a five days ride. Meat, bread, and cheese are wrapped up in the same kind of thing that people used to carry all their possessions, wrapped in a handkerchief, tied to the end of a stick. Well, the four set off. Before doing so, they visit Nadine Corey, who is Jenkins' dead late wife, and he is visiting the grave. But Richard Jenkins, who is the deputy, Kurt Russell, of course, the one-legged Patrick Wilson, and John Bruder all set out on this adventure together. Now, it's a five-day's ride. They're going to try to make it in three, and Kurt Russell says that the one thing we have going for us here is that we're smarter than the cave dwellers, and he constantly has to keep reminding Patrick Wilson to take it easy as his leg is fucked up, and they do not want to sustain more extreme injury. I love the dialogue throughout. It's like Deadwood. It's proper, efficient, eloquent, and direct. There's some swearing, there's some inappropriate comments, but it's all woven in and speaking to their intellect. The intellect of people who spent their days reading and writing, not scrolling the fucking internet. Yes, the internet is great. Modern medical marvels are great. But the problem is, I think that our communication... And her eloquent language, has gone the way of the dodo, the dinosaur, or some of the people in this film who are brutally slaughtered and their bones are still decomposing in the desert. We have a white horse for a white fox. Now, Matthew Fox here is wearing clothing that is far too nice for his journey out into the desert, but that's how the man chooses to dress. We also hear the term somnambulist, which is just a fancy way of saying sleepwalker, and there's mention of them saying that they should have brought the Yule Tree. Well, this little bell trap that Matthew Fox brings with him, that they put around the perimeter, is it as sophisticated as Laura Lenny's perimeter attack device in Congo? No, it is not. But it's still pretty cool and very affordable. He also makes a comment, Mr. Bruder, smart men don't get married. I love the dialogue here. And 11 and bright hope, 11 women have invited him over for dessert on more than one occasion. So he is well-liked by the local ladies. They talk about being raw from the ride. I think it's appropriate because as some of them might very well be eaten, you can consider that being served medium well. They have some normal discussions while they're trying to sleep by the campfire. They're not having any big revelations. They're not cracking the code on the universe. Richard Jenkins is simply saying, you know, I love taking baths, and I want to read while I'm in the bath. How do you recommend I do that, Forrest Hunt? He says, well, why don't you get a choir master stand for the tub reading and just dry your fingers off before you flip the pages? Very clever indeed. Well, this is that part of the film where it's slow burn. These guys have a long journey ahead of them. So there's two things that are happening here. One, we're getting that camaraderie. We are learning to care about these characters. Because they're the protagonists, because you're spending time with them, it doesn't really matter who's on the other side of the screen. We as the audience are going to identify with those that we get to see and spend time with and commiserate with. And that's exactly what the director is doing. He's making you care about them. So when they are taken from you, like Noah Foster says in the TV show Scream, it hurts. But the second thing the director is doing is he's establishing a mood. This is the Western part of this film. Arguably, the entire film is a Western, but this is that part like Unforgiven or countless Westerns where you've got these heroes, some more capable than others, some more talented with various pursuits, but they are on a mission to get back the lovely lady and townsfolk who have been taken. And, up till now, the enemy has vastly been unseen, and it's been more of a rumor and reputation. But make no mistake, when we get further in, in a metaphorical way, we go deeper into the film. But in a very direct way, we will go deeper into the Troglodyte's cave. And all this time that you've spent with the suspense building and the character development brewing, that is what's going to make things pay off in a much more satisfying way. Okay, they're sitting here filling up their canteens with river water. I say ick. I know they say that as long as the water is moving, it's possibly potable, but I've heard so many stories of people dying because they drank bad water. There's so much amoebas and bacterium and disgusting shit that grows in water. I say no. Perhaps they're boiling the water off screen. Who knows? There's mention of a tincture of opium. This will come into play both for one of the main human characters and for some of the trogs at a later time. There's also mention of riding Vanguard. Well, what does that mean? Vanguard is not just a money management agency that works for Farmers Insurance and some other insurance companies. No, Vanguard is a noun that means the leading position or group in a movement, field, or action. It can also refer to the troops or ships that are at the front of a military force. So when John Bruder says, I am going to ride Vanguard, that means he's going to be the chief scout or the main lookout that is riding in front of the pack. Now these interlopers come upon them, and I love what Kurt Russell says within the first 10 seconds, as they are sleeping at night in the middle of the prairie. You're a stranger and a sneak. I want you to light a match and identify where you are so that we can track you. They ask, any compañeros? That's just a Spanish term for buddies. He says, yes, I have an associate. So the two guys throw down their weapons, they're holding out matches, and then boom, boom, boom. Matthew Fox fucking executes them, and he doesn't feel bad about it either. I love it. He says, those men were scouts for a raiding party or thieves. Maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. But one, they have a main mission that they cannot be distracted from or deterred from. And two, do you really want to take chances when the stakes are this high? Absolutely not. We're just going to nickname this guy Sharp Shooter Bruder. And again, the camaraderie between these guys. Now, Patrick Wilson is spending a lot of time bitching. Bruder is spending a lot of time bragging. And the sheriff seems to be the one that's got the best head on his shoulders and he's very mission-focused. But we are growing to really care about these characters and their outcomes. Bruder also has eyes like a hawk, and he's sharp as a goddamn tomahawk. And he says, again, you get some of this raw, but very colorful language. So he named his horse Saucy, and Saucy disappears. And Matthew Fox says, Saucy would never let some greaser on her back. This takes me back to Deadwood, where in five minutes of a Deadwood episode, you would hear so much colorful language, it would make your fucking head explode. And it's like David Milch said when talking about the script writing for Deadwood. If you go back into the real Wild West time, or the Black Hills, South Dakota, or whatever the fuck, do you want them to sound like Yosemite Sam, a g g g g garandam Tia, suffer in succotash, or do you want them to be saying things that people might actually say? That is why the language is colorful, and we appreciate colorful language. The dawn light, I think, looks great. It's almost dreamy. And then Wilson's leg. So Wilson's leg is almost a plot device. We know that he's on a crutch. We know that his leg is fucked. And basically, he's like having to move very precariously. But every time he takes a little misstep or he falls down, I am cringing because you can hear crunches. You can hear the bone making sounds. And as I was already familiar with this director's work for Brawl and Cell Block 99 and some other very violent films, I just did not know what they were going to show. Are they going to take his leg? Are they going to cut it off with a bone saw? I didn't know, but I was very concerned about the health of his leg. And this is before we even get to the antagonists. So they agree that they're going to leave Wilson behind, as he does not want them to take his leg. Instead, they set the bone. Fortunately, the camera pans away, so they do not really show the setting of the bone, but it's fucking horrendous. They agree that they're going to leave him behind, and he can follow suit at his own pace, and they will mark the route ever so often with four stones. There's also chatter of Bruder's German scope, and it's just great acting all around. And, of course, poor Patrick Wilson is left to hobble along and shuffle towards them, as they, of course, get ahead of him rather quickly. Sheriff Hunt is kind and honorable. He is clearly in the right position to be the leader of the group, and he has his shit together. And then, of course, Patrick Wilson punches Fox because of some loose comments that Fox makes, but it is ultimately to his detriment, because Patrick Wilson is remaining extremely stubborn. He wants to continue on this journey despite the ailing implications of his wounded leg. I believe that Fox deliberately instigated this fracas so that Patrick Wilson would have to be sidelined. I call that faux noble because he realized that Patrick Wilson was not going to stop pushing himself. So now that he's injured his leg further, he is going to have to move slower, which will ultimately be good for his looming health. This is, of course, the scene I talked about where they're like, look, we're going to have to take your leg before gangrene sets in. And he's like, no, fuck that. We hear horns blowing. Now, if we had never heard the horn at the beginning of the film, we would not know what that meant or what carnage ensued. But we hear the horn. So now it's curious, are the troglodytes close? Are they just on the perimeter of the camp? Are they just keeping an eye on things? Is this just the film's way of letting us know in an ominous way that they are getting closer and closer to their quarry and ultimately to their rescue mission? but the horns are just a great audible plot device. We learn that brooders killed women too. He was 10 when his family was killed by what he calls savages. So it's not surprising that he would refer to these bandits in the desert as greasers getting on his horse, because his family was killed by savages. So he was desensitized, and he was given the vengeance seed at a young age. And this scene reminds me of Unforgiven, where we learn that Clint Eastwood has killed everything that's either walked or crawled at some point. He's killed women, he's killed children, I don't know if that means he's killed babies, but Clint Eastwood was the hero in Unforgiven, but he's really the anti-hero. I'm getting similar shades of that here with John Bruder. Also, I like how they talk where Kurt Russell says, Deputy, close that aperture, in other words, shut your fucking mouth. He also reminds the group that they're here primarily for a rescue, not a massacre. So he's got the idea of saving the townspeople and maybe just doing what has to be done. John Bruder, for example, is liable to just kill everything that's not human or that does not take on more civilized qualities, which is fine by me because of the circumstances of how things unfold. It's really cool to see them tracking the horse tracks. I like this. There's been some shows, some Western shows that do something similar. One that comes to mind is the show called Godless, and that's a good one. But Godless is available on Netflix. It's got Scoot McNeary, and I highly recommend it. You get violence that falls upon them. It's sudden, and it's sweeping, and it's depraved. Matthew Fox is now down one hand. So he's a one-handed fox. They kill a couple of trogs. Some of them are now injured. And he basically is sitting there with his hand all fucked up. He says, supply me with dynamite, because I want to go out. I'm too vain to live as a cripple. And then they also give him a cigar. He claims that he's killed 116 Indians. Holy shit. Triple digits. But really, it's such good character work and it's such fantastic acting because in his face, he's panting, he's sweaty, he's just lost a hand because of a fucking bone tomahawk, I might add. He is in peril, but he has such self-awareness in who he is and how he wants to go out on his terms. Sadly, we're shown a little later because of Patrick Wilson, who's still coming along slowly but surely like the tortoise and the fucking hare. We see what he sees which is ultimately what befell Fox. Fox was able to kill one more troglodyte, but it was a a life-for-a-life situation, and he got a bone tomahawk through the face. He is fucking dead. Kurt Russell and Jenkins, Richard Jenkins, have been taken by these trogs. I was so devastated to see that Fox was dead. He probably would have bled out anyway, but damn it. This is a very interesting scene too, because as they're abducting Kurt Russell and Richard Jenkins, which is no doubt terrifying, They stick the end of a bone in Kurt Russell's mouth and like hit the back of his head. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I thought they were just going to kill him violently right there, but it was really just a tactic to knock him out. I don't exactly know why or what, but it, it was very, very unnerving. And fortunately, his face and his teeth are still intact. We learn that in this claustrophobic cave of troglodyte carnage, the very pretty, sightly, and shrewd wife of Patrick Wilson she is still alive, as is the deputy. But they've already eaten the drifter, possibly because he was already wounded, most likely because he was the asshole that traipsed into their boneyard or their cemetery, and he just had to go. They are describing the horrors that have previously unfolded, and they killed this guy and they ate him. So obviously, this professor back at Little Hope Camp was not pulling his punches, and he was not underselling the violence and savagery that could very well take place as we get closer to the matter's clarifying on what happened to everyone. The screeching that Wolfface does, or the leader of the troglodytes, is fucking horrifying. I do not care for the screech, it sounds animalistic, it sounds barbaric, and it does not sound, most importantly, human. Kurt Russell just lost a finger, holy shit. What's so fucked up about this scene is that In most movies where someone has been taken captive, they'll slap them around, maybe they'll punch them, they'll handcuff them to a chair in an interrogation room, but we are in a different time. We are in a time of barbarism, where if you piss off these troglodytes, they can do one swift action, or they can commit to one very brief task, and you can lose a finger, a hand, you can be brutally harmed in a matter of seconds. These guys are not fucking around. Well, if the violence that you've already seen thus far does not drive home that point like a tomahawk to the skull, guess what? You are now about to see what I've had to see about four times as I've watched this movie a handful of times. You're about to see the deputy that was taken in the original group of three pulled out from his cell, his little makeshift cell in the cave, and he is stripped down. He is scalped. And while you can see the top portion of his dome brain and he's screaming in pain, they then pull him up and they bisect him vertically, and then they rip him apart. And then the next scene that you get to observe at your leisure is them feasting on his remains. Holy shit, holy and unholy shit, I might add. But this is something that is so brutal, and it's so organic, and it makes so much sense. You have already been prepared for this. We've already heard they're cannibals. We've already heard that this Native American professor says that my group may be violent and do what they need to do to survive. But these troglodytes, they don't even have a language. That's how primitive and fucked up they are. That they will do shit like this and then go eat a sandwich. Well, a sandwich of probably spam meat. Because these guys are not herbivores or vegans. But this scene is just so brutal. And it's merciless. And it's unflinching. It's one of those things, like the traffic accident in Final Destination 2, where it's so atrocious, you should not watch any of it. And yet, simultaneously, it's so provocative, you cannot look away. But I knew the second I saw this scene that I had just witnessed something that was absolutely earth shatteringly nightmare inducing. And I was happy to see, I took comfort in the fact that when I went online, everybody said with the same reaction Holy fuck. Like Kurt Russell losing a finger, Matthew Fox losing a hand, the stable boy losing his head, no big deal. But this scene is what gave everybody pause. And to the director's credit, you see what these survivors have to see. And it makes so much sense because, and I totally agree with the director on this, when he was asked to tone down the violence, he said, look, these people, these trogs, have been given a hell of a reputation. If we get there and it's underwhelming, then this whole thing is going to feel like a red herring, or it's going to seem like a fool's errand. But no, we are going to see them in their depravity, in the violence, in how they sustain themselves. And as you witness it, you will have newfound appreciation, not just for the predicament that these fuckers are in, but you will also get to see another lifestyle, and why Little Hope may not be perfect, but it is a far sight removed from the primitive nature of this cave-dwelling culture. While this bisection is occurring, Kurt Russell is trying to give this guy, in his fleeting moments of life, some comfort. And he says, don't worry, the cavalry's coming, they're hot on our trails, Well, we learn sadly as Richard Jenkins asks and finds out that that was simply said for Nick's benefit as he was being dispatched. The Calvary is in fact not coming. The only Calvary is them, plus a limping along one-legged Patrick Wilson who is trailing them probably 12 hours or a day's time. Kurt Russell is as honorable as they fucking come. I absolutely love his performance here, and I do not understand. I've already performed a Slick Flick pick on Dark Blue which I think is one of his greatest performances ever. I do not understand why this guy has not been given more award recognition, but he's clearly worthy of it. We're going to do a little mathematical catch-up here. Kurt Russell has killed one. Jenkins had killed one. The opium flask, where they basically know that there's a tincture of opium in the opium flask, and they fool the trogs into drinking it. Well, three drink from it, but only one trog drank enough opium that the doctor, the sightly female doctor, Patrick Wilson's wife, says that he will die, one may pass out, and the other one will have no effect. But this opium flask killed another one, and then Fox killed one. So we have four trogs down. We're told by this doctor that there's 12 males total, and two blind, crippled females. What the fuck? But if that's true, if there are 12, we now have eight, as four have been taken out. The wolf skull guy with the boar tusks, he appears to be their leader. Now, I don't know that he's wearing a pin. I don't know that he's wearing a hello sticker or a name tag, I don't think he has a placard or a plaque on his desk signifying that he's the group leader, but I think because of the tribal markings, because of the wolf skull, because he's the one that screeches, he's a large figure, I believe that he is probably the strongest, possibly he's an elder, but he appears to be the leader of this clan. Also, Patrick Wilson just killed two more trogs. I don't know if this was done by design, but he's sleeping on the side of the road, And he's got his hat either resting on his stomach or resting a little bit above him. I don't know if that was just a fortuitous accident or if he positioned it there on purpose, but it allowed him to get the drop on these two trogs because they shoot an arrow thinking it's his head and it just hits his cowboy hat. And then he's able to murder these two trogs. I will just leave it to it being a fortuitous fluke, but it definitely worked to his advantage. Now this scene where after killing these two trogs, he starts digging around in their trachea And he sees that there's this bone whistle that has been installed in their windpipe. That is how they're able to whistle. But this looks like it's so intertangled and interwoven into their trachea that this must have been put in them at a young age or some shit. But this whistling is ultimately how they communicate. So he rips it out. He does not have hand sanitizer. So he's not really able to wash it out. But as he blows what blood was in it, he then is able to use it. So he immediately blows into this bone whistle. And that draws the attention of another who thinks it's one of his trog allies, and he just comes up the road matter-of-factly, and Patrick Wilson fucking kills him. All I can say is, good work, Patrick, for taking out three, but that's how you get germs, buddy. And you're already fucked up with that one leg, and you're crawling around, so do you really need to get bacteria or dysentery or something? Probably not. Well, Mrs. O'Dwyer, his little doctor wife, she is tough as nails with her nails. She's tough, she's formidable, and not to be trifled with. The trogs are such courteous hosts. <laughs> they give her a bird to eat. So they basically kill a the bird, they carry it, and they throw it just outside of her little makeshift prison cell. Because they need to fatten her up, of course. That's what these characters speculate anyway. They have kind of a melancholy, organic discussion about the flea circus that used to come to town. It's this director's kind lies and the attention to detail, character development, This is what's so marvelous, is again, they're not talking about anything that's otherworldly. They're not solving any great historical mysteries. They're simply scared, and they're trying to mask that fear through banal conversation. Okay, we're going to do a dead recount. So, there were 12 males. Kurt Russell killed one by gunshot. Jenkins killed one by gunshot. Fox killed one. The Flask killed one. Wilson killed three, and acquires a whistle. So, Wilson the Whistler. In the cave, Kurt Russell then kills another. Wilson kills another, and then, ultimately, Kurt Russell probably killed the remaining three. Kurt Russell, fuck. This is a very painful scene. These guys, learning that one of their own has been killed because of this flask caper, they rip Kurt Russell from his cell, they cut open his abdomen with this bone tomahawk, and they stick the flask, which has been on this fire, coal hot. They stick it in his abdomen, and they shoot him with his own rifle. But because these guys are particularly unsophisticated, it takes them a while to learn how to reload the rifle. So in this moment, as the troglodyte that's standing over Kurt Russell is distracted, there's a brief moment of hope, like, oh, they don't know how to reload, but they do ultimately figure it the fuck out, to Kurt Russell's detriment. But in this brief moment of opportunity, Kurt Russell is very intentional with his time. He cuts off the foot and then the head of a troglodyte with the bone tomahawk. If that's not a just dessert, I don't know what is. But Arthur, the guy who's been limping along, Patrick Wilson, ultimately arrives to the rescue. He took a different approach to this cave, and he was able to capture these trogs off guard. And that's when Kurt Russell says his great line, as he knows that he's been mortally wounded, say goodbye to my wife, I'll say hello to yours, that is what he is saying to Richard Jenkins, as we learned at the beginning of the film, Richard Jenkins' wife had passed away previously. Kurt Russell says, you know, give me the repeater, that's what they call a rifle, like a semi-automatic rifle, and I will take out the remaining three. Well, we hear three gunshots as Patrick Wilson and his beloved wife and Richard Jenkins are slowly making their exit, which will be a five-day ride back to Little Hope. Well, a couple things here. First of all, his wife says something very funny. She looks at him as he's been blowing on this germ-infested bone whistle. She's like, mm, I, don't, I don't think I want to kiss you. You've had that thing in your mouth. So again, it's comic relief. But we hear three gunshots, so we're left to assume that Kurt Russell terminated the remaining threat. But let's look at this little numbering scale body count once more. So we were told that there were 12 males. Okay, minus one for the one that Kurt Russell killed early on, minus another one for the one Jenkins killed, and then another for the one Fox killed, and then the flask. So by my math, that leaves eight trogs. Wilson then killed three within a short span of time on that little narrow path. So, eight minus three is five. Well, Kurt Russell kills the one that shot him in the cave after that guy tortured the shit out of Kurt Russell. Now we're down to four. And then Wilson kills one in the cave entry, which actually distracts this trog that Kurt Russell killed. So, by my math, that's five, four, three. We're down to three. So, what I don't understand is in the IMBD, it said that the one with the wolf mask, the leader, he just kind of trailed off, which could potentially leave it open for a sequel. Well, by my account, all of them are dead provided that Kurt Russell nailed them all with one shot each. Boom, boom, boom. Maybe he got three headshots. I don't know. But I do wonder about that math. Is it an oversight? that I fuck up? It's possible that I fucked up because my math skills are atrocious. But either way, I'm choosing to believe, much like I believe that when Leonardo DiCaprio spun that totem at the end of Inception, that it was the real world and he was reunited with his children. I'm choosing to believe that these three will make it out happy and whole. Because let's face it, we've already seen enough horrendous violence. Oh, but wait. As this crew, Three Musketeer Trio, is leaving the cave, they are gifted one last delightful sight. It is two women trogs. All of their limbs have been severed, and their eyes have had stakes driven through them. Much like in the show The X-Files, on this very controversial episode called Home, it's a very similar situation where you've got these inbred cannibals And the women are only used for breeding purposes. And it's just so disturbing on so many levels. But these fucking troglodytes are absolutely terrible. They're one of the creepiest, most horrifying, monstrous villains ever portrayed in cinema. And they're unique. How often do you get to see a Western that starts drifting further and further into the the horror realm? Not because it's not violent and not because you're not dealing with an actual measurable, foreseeable threat out in the desert that you might very well expect. It's just because of the violence that's shown, how matter-of-fact it is, how visceral it is, how unrelenting. You're begging for that camera to pan away, as it did with the setting of Patrick Wilson's leg bone. No, 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 no. It doesn't just not pan away. It just sits there and stares, and the sounds and the visuals all come together in a way that you have what I call a nightmare sandwich. I love this film. I don't want to rewatch it while eating. I don't want to rewatch it very often. But it is all the things, all the ingredients, all the accoutrement that you would expect from a beloved Western such as Unforgiven. And it adds a terror dimension to it. It adds these likable characters that use colorful language to articulately express what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're fearing. And it does end on a, well, relatively, it's a utopian type note at the end. But just for purposes of a normal story, Most of the characters that you really loved are dead, but we're at least given something. This is a less bleak ending than the ending of Seven, for example. The film nearly had a larger budget, but financiers demanded, and the director refused. With fewer resources at their disposal, the production mostly got by okay. But there was one key area that the director was unsatisfied with. As he explained in an interview with Deadline, the thing I am least happy with in the entire movie are the exterior locations. He wanted to shoot the film in New Mexico, but wound up needing to settle for Los Angeles. As the characters moved towards their goal, the idea was to have the landscape change around them. It was very specific in the script how the landscape was supposed to progress. The ideal progression of landscape would have been from hills and green, to flatter in green, to green and dirt, dirt to red, white to rocky, to almost a primordial setting. The director said the finished film was about 80% of his total vision for the script. Now this is all from looper.com, Facts about Bone Tomahawk that will make you fear the West. Last snippet here. What they actually wanted him to cut was the scene where Chicory talks to Sheriff Hunt about the troubles of reading in the bath. Now this was by the campfire and this was like day two or three when they're on their journey. It is a quiet character-driven scene that was targeted for removal by financers because it doesn't explicitly move the plot forward. Well, this is what the director had to say about that. The scene was worth walking away from instant funding to keep. He goes against the popular notion that every scene needs to move the plot forward, saying, I think that's one of the reasons in general that the aesthetic of current moviemaking isn't to my taste for the most part. There's this feeling that everything needs to move the plot forward. Of the bathtub scene in particular, he said, Yeah, you could cut it out, because it has nothing to do with the story, but it has everything to do with why I made the movie. Very eloquent. I like what you have to say there. I'm also reminded I showed my father one time the movie Collateral, with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx, he did not like the opening sequence where Jamie Foxx is having about a six-minute conversation with Jada Pinkett Smith. He was getting frustrated, perturbed, a little bit of anxiety, like, what does this have to do with the film? Well, Roger Ebert said, sometimes if you take scenes in and of themselves, they're such beautiful scenes, who really cares? And I take a very similar posture. Now, Roger Ebert gave this three out of four stars. And if you know anything about Roger Ebert, 3 out of 4 stars on a Western genre is a very commendable score. He says the following, Bone Tomahawk is a surprisingly sturdy Western, a piece with obvious nods to John Ford, built around a quartet of travelers on a rescue mission, until it takes a sharp left turn and becomes something closer to horror. These kind of genre mashups rarely work, which makes the impact that much more impressive. In fact, it's indicative of how little studios think of the Western, that such a solid piece of work, with such a strong cast, is being barely released in theaters. The once thriving genre, that is the Western genre, has become the stuff of independent cinema in films like The Salvation, Slow West, and now Zoller's debut. In terms of the overall quality of this quartet of films, that may not be a bad thing. We could be in the middle of an independent film Western renaissance. I agree. Mashups are difficult. People don't like severe contrast, and they don't like it when they're traveling in one direction, and then things are abruptly stopped and you're traveling in another direction, hence Western and horror. But why do these two have to be completely separated? Why do they have to be bisected, if you will, or bifurcated? Why can't they be conjoined? Why can't you be traveling the same stream with different sources of water, tributaries, estuaries, feeding into that? These are questions that I have. Like most Westerns, Bone Tomahawk hinges on a number of questionable decisions. The first comes when Sheriff Hunt sporting one of the best mustaches in the history of the genre (laughs) that's what this guy used to work with at starbucks said the only men you can trust with a mustache are like the sam elliots of the western world from back in the day and i understand what he meant by that shoots a wanderer who calls himself buddy in the local saloon hunt's deputy sheriff chicory noted that buddy had been acting suspicious and caught him burying some likely bushwhacked belongings under a tree but they can't let buddy suffer so they call in samantha to help That night, Samantha is kidnapped by a group of savages. Despite an injured leg that's looking more likely to be lost to gangrene, Arthur demands to be part of the rescue mission. Now, the director does not overplay the archetypes, but allows each character to have his or her own space. Perfect casting helps. Russell has the weathered confidence that someone like Sam Elliott, oh, I just mentioned him, has been exuding for decades. Fox does his best film work in a long time, as a man defiantly proud of how many Indians he's killed. Jenkins brings history to the kindly old man role, and Wilson is convincing as a man who refuses to let his infirmity stop him. Much of the dialogue is witty without being forcibly so. We've seen so many self-aware westerns, films that sound written by film school students more than of the time, but this script is clever and tight, and this direction remains sturdy throughout. Some may be turned off by the intensity of the final act, which includes a man being scalped alive and literally torn in half. Well, cinematic fanatics, I recently re-watched Last of the Mohicans. It's a violent film, it has some savage notes to it, but there's a scene where Magua cuts out the heart of the gray hair who he feels wronged him and his family. The camera did pan away, but the camera zooms in on the heart in Magua's hand. That film was violent. This film is relentless, but that does not make it a bad film, nor in my opinion does it detract from the film. The last stanza here from the Ebert review. Personally, I like that Bone Tomahawk is willing to get as intense as it does, not merely throwing around words like savages to describe a race of people, but actually presenting brutally violent, nearly supernatural cannibals as its villains. While the genre jump from John Ford to Eli Roth, I like how he put that, by the way, may be off-putting to some, it raises the stakes on a climax in a way that most Westerns fail to do. The director and his talented cast are willing to take this journey deep into the heart of darkness and it's their commitment that makes the entire project more than skin deep i love bone's tomahawk i highly recommend it to those who have an affinity for the western genre and those with a penchant for true horror both are clearly demonstrated whether you choose to see them as separate entities or a merging of the two is up to you but i think this is a fantastic flick and i have some respect for the director and the cast for bringing together something so grim and making it so gorgeous Should you ever deem your day a bad one, I politely ask you, cinematic fanatics, to recall a day and a sleigh in the life of Deputy Nick. Now, granted, Deputy Nick seemed like he was kind of a dick, but who will devolve from a human form to a pool of blood slick. Though he was kind of a dick, he no doubt did not deserve for them to bone tomahawk his dick. He is scalped, spike-fed his scalp, bisected alive and then digested, whether a long running time or violence uncompromising is contested. It remains my advice and strongly suggested that in this slick flick, your valuable time is well invested and your lingering doubts will be arrested. Your guess is as good as mine when I try to divine, is this flick a Western riddled with horror or simply a graphic Western film diversion? Regardless of which genre elements belong, I strongly urge you to avoid a western frontier excursion, for if you traipse down the wrong goddamn trail, in a pool of blood, you'll find submersion, and you will soon learn the terrors of the trog's perversion. I remain always your fellow fiend for films, your worthwhile cinepile, while you are my cinematic fanatics. Keep that popcorn fresh, or at least edible, for my next slick fucking pick. Pick 44, as in 44-caliber killer. Ayo! Pick 44, Slick Flick Pick. Outhouse Council, Broken Fixer. Don't Carpool with Clayton. Memo Alarming, Fixer Strong Arming, and Car Bomb Disarming. Michael Clayton, 2007. Your False Prophet, who prophesized many would in Stabbing Westward die. Falsetto Prophet. By the way, I love Stabbing Westward. That is a, a fantastic industrial, alternative rock band. And if you listen to Stabbing Westward, please listen to the song Everything I Touch, I Break. It is fan-fucking-tastic. Falsetto Prophet, out.